Welcome this morning to Prairie Doc Radio. This week, neither Dr. Holm nor Joan Hogan are available, so I am filling in for Joan as today's host for Prairie Doc Radio. For about a year now, I have been helping with fundraising efforts for the Healing Words Foundation, which is the nonprofit organization that supports this radio program, on-call television on South Dakota Public Broadcasting, and other efforts to provide honest, science-based medical information. It's an honor for me today to serve in this role, and I'm excited to have Dr. Deb Johnston, a family medicine physician with the Avera Medical Group Brookings, in the studio with us. Good morning, Dr. Johnston. Good morning. It's good to be here. Excellent. Well, thanks for being here. During today's show, we plan to discuss a variety of medical issues, and we would be happy to discuss any medical issues or questions you may have. So please give us a call at 692 That's 692-1430. Well, Dr. Johnston, I think um, something that we've been hearing a lot about and seeing a lot about has been the flu. Could you give us an update on how, um, what you're seeing now regarding the flu? You know, we're still seeing influenza and we're still seeing a lot of influenza, but it does look like we might have passed our peak. Um, You know, it's not usually a straight up and down slope when you look at the numbers, uh, but a couple weeks in a row now we've been heading downwards. So there's still a lot of flu out there. There's still more flu than there have been in, in many of the recent years. So it's definitely still out there, but with a little bit of luck, the worst is over. Okay, so remind us, what are some of the symptoms of influenza? So some people get a very mild case and maybe they're just tired or or maybe they just have fevers and not a lot else, but most of the time, the people that come to our attention are the ones who come in and say, you know, it hit me like a truck. They'll often tell me, it, you know, I was fine when I left work, and by the time I got home, I could barely get out of the car. It just is a very, very sudden onset. Um, fevers, fevers are not uncommon in children with respiratory illnesses, but we don't typically see them nearly as much in adults. So it's not uncommon to have fevers with influenza, 102, 103. It may last for five days or so. Um, so it, it does not tend to get over quite as quickly as, as you might expect from other other respiratory infections. There tends to be a lot of severe fatigue, um, can barely get out of bed, a lot of body aches, a lot of headaches, and then respiratory symptoms, head congestion, sore throat, cough, maybe shortness of breath. Um, Children and uh, people with the second type of flu, influenza B, are a little more likely to have some stomach symptoms with it too, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, that kind of thing. But Mm -hmm. classically, it's a respiratory illness. We often, both in the lay public and even in the medical field, will talk about flu or the stomach flu, but that's actually a a separate illness. That's gastroenteritis. It's not caused by the same um, organism, so it's, it's not the same thing. Influenza is a much more miserable experience for most of us adults. And how is influenza spread? 
Influenza is a respiratory virus, so it is spread from person to person, um, usually when you have a little closer, closer contact. But people who are sick can spread the virus for 24 hours before they know that they're sick. Mm -hmm. And um, they can continue to spread that virus for five to seven days. So it's, it's something that's contagious for quite a long time. So people will cough, they'll rub their noses, they'll get that virus on their hands, they'll, they will aerosolize that virus. It's a very contagious illness and you you really should stay home mm -hmm. if you've got it. Um, I know that's very hard for a lot of people to do just in terms of logistics in their lives, but um, first off, you're not going to be very productive at work because you're probably going to feel pretty darn cruddy mm -hmm. and second of all, your coworkers don't want this. Right. Stay home. Yes. <laughs> Keep your kids home. Stay home. Mm -hmm. Very good. Well, good. Well, thank you for that update on the flu. Um, it's time for us to take a break. Following these words from Avera Medical Group Brookings, Dr. Johnston and I will be happy to discuss the medical issues of interest to you. All right, welcome back to Prairie Doc Radio Program. I'm Laura Ellsworth, filling in today for our host, Joan Hogan. And joining me today in the studio is Dr. Deb Johnston. So before the break, we were chatting a little bit about influenza and some of the um, symptoms of that and the way it spreads. And so we had a question come in um, as we all try to protect ourselves from the, the different viruses and things going around. Um, it's become very common to use um, antimicrobial hand soap. And so we had a question come in about that and if using that um, contributes to resistance perhaps. You know, I don't think that there's any compelling evidence to say that it's a significant contribution. I think probably the biggest problem we have with the development of antimicrobial resistance is the overuse of antibiotics. Um, people, it's changed a lot in the time that I've practiced. Um, you know, when I first practiced, I would spend an awful lot of time trying to convince people that, no, you don't need an antibiotic for your cold. This is a viral illness. It's not going to help. And I would say that over those 20 years, I've, I've seen a shift, and people seem to be more aware of the fact that a lot of these infections are caused by viruses, that antibiotics aren't going to help when you have a virus, and that there is a problem associated with overusing antibiotics. So now, instead of well, are you sure, and um, how do you know, I'll get a lot of, okay, well, that's what I thought. I just wanted to make sure. So I think there's increasing awareness of that, but there's still an awful lot of unnecessary antibiotics that are handed out. And another contributing factor that I think doesn't get the kind of press that it should is the use of antimicrobials in animal feed, um, not to treat illness, but rather to promote more growth. So there's a lot of high power antibiotics that end up in our food supply um, because they help make bigger animals and bigger animals and more meat means better profit. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's still good for us to continue to wash our hands using those soaps that are available. 
I think that any soap is antimicrobial. Mm -hmm. And whether you use one that markets itself as antimicrobial or has some addition to make it more antimicrobial, or you just use plain old soap, the important thing is to wash your hands. Mm -hmm. Yes, very good. Yes, um, I have little ones, and so we say yes. wash the fronts and backs and in between the cracks. Yes, <laughs> so that's our saying that's to make statement. sure we get all those surfaces and get that yes. all cleaned off before we and, eat. Or and soap and water is, you know, there was a while where we went and said, well, you're better off using the alcohol-based hand cleaners, and they've kind of walked that back now. There are some things that are resistant to that alcohol-based hand cleaner. I think the most important thing is to be cleaning your hands. And one challenge I think that soap and water has is that people often don't wash for long enough. Uh, you really should wash long enough to sing happy birthday to yourself. Mm -hmm. And very few people do that. It's a lot harder to cheat with the alcohol-based hand cleaners because it's there and it just has to dry. There's, there's not a lot of time sensitivity to it. Mm -hmm. so. Whatever you're doing, just do something to clean your hands. Very good. Yes. Makes a big difference, doesn't it? All right. Um, we want to talk about there's a new shingles vaccine that's available. Can you tell us more yes, about that? Yes. I'm very, very excited about this vaccine. We've had a shingles vaccine. Um, oh, golly. I'm guessing it was about 10 years ago, maybe 15, that we started using this vaccine. And the old vaccine was basically a supercharged version of the chickenpox vaccine that we give to children, but a much, much higher dose. That means it was a live virus, and that means that people who had certain health problems or who were on certain medications that made their immune system not work so well couldn't get this vaccine. Uh, additionally, the vaccine was not terribly effective at reducing the risk of shingles, of actually getting the outbreak. It did help immensely at keeping people from getting that pain that lasts and lasts and lasts after shingles, what we call post-herpetic neuralgia. Um, so it was definitely a worthwhile vaccine to get, but it, it was kind of a disappointing vaccine in terms of, um, it, you know, our ideal, which is preventing the, the infection in a very high percentage of people. So this winter, the uh, people who investigate and approve such things, approved a new shingles vaccine, which is an inactivated vaccine, so there's no live virus in this one. Uh, it is supposedly 90% effective at preventing shingles, so that's a huge improvement. Um, and if you don't get shingles, you're not going to have the pain that that lasts and lasts and lasts afterwards. Um, so this is a series of two shots instead of the one shot that the old shingles vaccine was that need to be given two to six months apart. Uh, even people who have had the old shingles vaccine, it's recommended that they get this new shingles vaccine and most insurance companies are covering. Now, Medicare aged people are a little bit of a special circumstance because Medicare doesn't cover most vaccines um, under your doctor component. So um, 
in order to know if you're going to get this vaccine or not, and you can obviously get it, but whether or not insurance will cover, it's covered by your drug plan, your Medicare Part D plan. So most of the time what we're doing is sending a prescription to your pharmacy, and then your pharmacy can run it through your insurance and let you know what your copay will be if it's covered or, or whatever. You're very welcome to get it even if it doesn't cover, and I would definitely recommend that you do so. Um, but especially if you've had the old vaccine and your insurance covers the old vaccine, there may be an issue with just the formulary hasn't caught up yet. So it may be worth waiting just a little while to see or not mm-hmm. get the vaccine. I'm a big fan. <laughs> and what, when, do, when do you recommend we start getting the vaccine? The vaccine is approved for age 50 and above, just like the old vaccine. Um, Most insurance companies, if they're going to cover, start covering at age 60. And that's the same as the old vaccine as well. So 60 and above. A lot of of us at the clinic, uh, that has traditionally been our 60th birthday present to ourselves is Mm -hmm. to get that shingles vaccine. (laughs) That's good. So So, um, you said there's two, you you get it? Um, twice. Um, yes. Uh, time There's a, sh- a shot and a booster shot. So okay. you get the first shot and then two to six months later you should get the second shot. We don't really have a lot of information yet about well what happens if I forget and I don't get it for a year. Mm-hmm. Most vaccines you don't have to start over. Mm-hmm. So most of the time that's still okay but we don't really have that information out there yet. So Okay. So even if you've had the old um, shingles vaccine shot, it would be recommended that you that do you get this one try as well, exploring yep. this new one as well for your health. All yep. right. Absolutely. Are there any um, any major risks or anything with getting this new shot that you're aware no, of? No. Um, you know, any vaccine can make you feel kind of run down and achy. It's uh, the whole point of the vaccine is to teach your immune system to stimulate your immune system. So a lot of people will feel kind of run down while that happens. You may get some swelling and soreness and at the injection site. Uh, of course, uh, allergic reactions are possible to anything that mm-hmm. we're exposing our bodies to any any unusual substance. So, you know, people are allergic to peanuts. People are allergic to eggs. You can be allergic to the vaccine components as well. But mm-hmm. uh, serious side effects are really rare. Okay. All right. Thank you for that information. All right. We need to take a break. And following these words from Avera Medical Group Brookings, Dr. Johnston and I will be happy to discuss the medical issues of interest to you. So give us a call at 692-1430. Welcome back to the Prairie Doc radio program. I'm Laura Ellsworth, filling in today for our host, Joan Hogan. And joining me today in the studio is Dr. Deb Johnston. We're talking about a variety of medical issues. And if you have something you'd like to call and ask about, you can call in at 692-1430. Things are always changing for parents, new recommendations and things like that. And one of the new things that is out and we have a question about is giving babies a small amount of peanut butter. Can you tell us more about that, Dr. Johnston? (coughs) This is definitely a big change. We used to recommend avoiding peanut butter even until age two. And now it seems like early introduction 
reduces the risk of those allergies later on. So if, if mom is breastfeeding, even that peanut exposure through her breast milk is a good thing. And then once that child is on solids in that four to six month age range, um, we do recommend introducing peanuts early on. Obviously, you're not going to give your infant a whole peanut, but peanut butter in things, a little dab of peanut butter, that early exposure is is thought now to be a good thing. There's only two things that we recommend you not give your infant. Number one is honey, and that's because honey, even processed honey, uh, can carry botulism. And until that child is one year of age, their own gut bacteria isn't strong enough to fight off that botulism. So no honey for babies. And the other thing is regular cow's milk. And that's because a lot of children are not uh, able to digest that. When exactly your particular infant is able to digest that unprocessed dairy protein is an individual thing. So, you know, you might introduce it at 10 months and get away with it, and your neighbor might introduce it at 10 months and your child gets severely anemic because that that protein can actually cause an injury to the intestine and cause a little bit of bleeding and anemia. Plus, most of the time, children under a year aren't getting enough iron-rich foods from their diet, so they still need that formula with the iron in it. So other than that, everything is fair game and i i very vividly remember telling parents no fish no shellfish let's look at let's look at what the big allergies are in your family and let's delay introduction as long as we can and now we think that was the wrong way to go and mm-hmm. the right way to go is is that early introduction of foods hmm. very interesting all right thank you for that update um, so spring is supposedly coming. It doesn't really <laughs> seem to be here yet. <laughs> um, and we, a lot of these gray days and cold days, we get kind of stuck inside. And um, seasonal affective disorder is something that um, we could all learn more about. Could you yes. tell us a little bit more about that? So I think everybody gets a little bit of the winter blues. I mean, we we all get a little tired of these long, gray, cold days. And, you know, it's it's you can't get out and and do the things that you like to do and even if you're an outdoor sports kind of person it's not like we've really had good outdoor sports weather here um one of the big contributors we think is those shorter grayer days less sunlight less sunlight hitting the back of the eye and it it can wreak havoc with your neurotransmitters in your brain so seasonal affective disorder is something that I think a lot of people down in the South have no real concept of, and they don't really um, understand what it's like living in our more n- northern climates, and that would include physicians. So basically, seasonal affective disorder is those people who develop depression predictably over the winter months, and mm-hmm. as soon as it starts uh, getting longer days and lighter, they their moods brighten and they feel a whole lot better. Um, There are very effective treatments. Some people will use a a full spectrum light box. You don't just sit underneath your fluorescent lights. There's actually special lights that hit the right spectrum in the light Mm -hmm. scale um, that you can use. And other people will start taking antidepressant medications as the weather starts getting cooler and the days start getting shorter. So often I'll start those Oh, around Halloween or so, and then continue them uh, up until we're we're really out of winter 
Okay. So that can be very helpful and very effective. It is a real disease, um, and sometimes it takes a little teasing out to identify. I find that people tend to have the most trouble kind of in January or so. Mm -hmm. That's when it really seems to peak. We are getting a little longer days, so I think for most people it's starting to lighten up, but it's still still not great when you're suffering from that this time of year. Mm-hmm. So are there some patients that you just kind of, they just kind of know, and so every year they Absolutely. take during the winter months, that's Absolutely. Okay. Um, we may start them and they just take the medication during the winter, or they may be someone who's on the medication all year round, and we just increase the dose a little bit for the winter months. Mm-hmm. So okay. um, it, it definitely is something that we deal with and we address, and some people are kind of more aware of the trouble that they have than others. But I, like I say, I think everybody struggles a little bit uh, this time of year, or at least most of us do. But uh, for some people, it, it gets pretty severe and they have a very hard time functioning this time of year. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the light treatment as well. Is that something, um, if you need that, how do you get something like that? You can actually buy that on Amazon. Oh, okay, <laughs> um, all right. But you, you do have to be careful uh, because a poorly constructed box can can leak a lot of damaging rays and of course it is light it is ultraviolet light and uh, we do worry about that for your skin so it's not an entirely um, risk-free treatment but it is something that can be very very helpful yeah okay all right thank you well we need to take a break and following these words from Avera Medical Group Dr. Johnston and I will be happy to discuss the medical issues of interest to you all right welcome back to the Prairie Doc radio program thank you for joining us I'm Laura Ellsworth and here talking with Dr. Deb Johnston Um, the next area we want to talk about a little bit was type 1 diabetes and this actually came up because I have a close friend who's four-year-old was just um, diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, and I don't know a lot about it or how to be supportive of my friend who's parenting with that. So if you could tell us a little bit about how, what, to start with, how you even find it out that a child has type 1 diabetes. So to back up just a little bit, there's two main different types of of what some patients call sugar diabetes. Um, One is type one, and that classically is more commonly seen in children, especially young children, although not exclusively seen in young, in children. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes it's called juvenile diabetes, but more accurately, it's called type one diabetes. And then there's type two diabetes, which is classically seen in older and often overweight individuals. And fundamentally, they're, they're different diseases because in the type 2 diabetic, the far more common type of diabetes, uh, that individual is resistant to their insulin. Their body doesn't can no longer use their insulin effectively, and so their sugar levels rise. In the type 1 diabetic, that's a different situation. That's a situation where the body's immune system has attacked their pancreas, which is what produces the insulin, and really damaged and ultimately destroyed the ability of that pancreas to make that insulin. So in 1, your body can't, or in in type 2, so in the, the most common type, your body can't use your insulin effectively in the type one, the juvenile, the less common type, 
your body just doesn't have insulin to use in the first place. So with the type 2 diabetics, those are the ones that sometimes are on pills and um, sometimes have quote-unquote diet-controlled diabetes, but a type 1 diabetic is going to need insulin. Um, so our treatments at this point for those type 1 diabetics are insulin injections, and some of them have pumps so that they, they have just a little insulin dribbling in all the time, and they can program it, and, and they don't need to get those periodic shots because the needle just stays right there under their skin, and they, that can be used to give them their insulin. Um, but more often, these are the folks that are taking insulin shots, and they may take five different injections in a day, uh, one a long-acting insulin that gives them a little bit all day long, and then insulin before each meal. So this is a, a very challenging disease for the individual who has it and for the parent. And um, one of the important things is going to be control and uh, predictability and consistency with the diet. And as you can imagine, that's an extremely difficult thing, especially for a little kid who is going to have a hard time understanding why um, maybe they can't just have however much birthday cake they want when they go to visit their, their friend for their birthday party. Um, Activity also will increase the rate of sugar absorption. So uh, those children, if they want to play sports, are going to have to be kind of aware of how much activity and how much they need to impact or change their diet or their their sugars. Um, there's going to be a lot of waking up at 3 o'clock in the morning to check a blood sugar mm -hmm. uh, for them. This is very hard on a family and a marriage. And as these children grow into teenagers, um, you know, being a teenager is a really hard thing anyway, but when you have something that really does separate you from your peers and really does impact your activity, that's a very difficult thing as well. Mm -hmm. So my best advice uh, for anyone who is, has a family member or a friend who has a child affected is just to be there and to communicate with that uh, mother, that father, okay, you know, we're going to do a, a birthday and what can we do to make this easier for your child? And, and maybe that means that we're not going to have birthday cake. Mm -hmm. Maybe we're going to have um, fruit snacks or fruit skewers and uh, bob for apples and, um, you know, do something that, that isn't revolving around food. Yeah. Yes. That's a great point, yeah. And there's so much sugar out there available oh, yes. for our children all the time. So to be conscious of that and how it's being offered and um, yeah. maybe think twice before we just offer children exactly. sugar. And that's a great point. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Johnston, for being in here t um, at the studio with it's us my today. Pleasure. We've learned a lot, and it's time for us to wrap up our program. So we hope you've enjoyed the Prairie Doc radio program. And we'll listen again for Prairie Doc, brought to you by the Avera Medical Group, Brookings. As always, you can hear and see more from the Prairie Doc online at prairiedoc.org. Dr. Johnston, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Thank you, Lynn. It's been my pleasure.